I have a bit of a dilemma. Uh, my dilemma is that I need to lose some weight. But the only cardiovascular activity I like is basketball. Now, the dilemma is this. I am 50 years old. I wear glasses and I'm out of shape. So when I go to 24-hour fitness to get selected to join in one of the pickup games, let's just say I'm not a high first-round draft choice. As I wait hopelessly to be included in the game, which rarely, if ever, occurs, I'm immediately taken back to my elementary school days. Perhaps you remember those days, the days where you wondered whether or not you'd get to go to the cool kids' party. Remember middle school when you wondered if you could get a date to the dance Or you were in high school and you were applying for colleges and you wondered if your favorite was going to choose you. Or some of you were in college and you went to a sorority or fraternity and you went through the process of hoping to get a bid so that they would pick you to be part of their group. That anxiety, that fear. It's a fear of rejection. It's a process that at times can be cruel, but it's most certainly emotionally draining. I am a person of what's called high EQ. That's emotional quotient. I'm a particularly feelings-oriented, sensitive person. Intelligence quotient, IQ? Eh, I don't know so much. I'm somewhere middle to Forrest Gump. I'm not exactly sure where I fit in that. But needless to say, as somebody with a high EQ, my approach to theology has rarely, if ever, been, let me see what's true. I'm going to go on this investigative real mind search to find out what is true. That rarely has my intellectual curiosity guided me. What has generally driven me has been the emotional felt needs that I have. Now, again, that's just me, so I share with you my story because it's relevant to our discussion because when I arrived at seminary, a young man who was raised Catholic and came to Jesus in a charismatic church environment, um, And they started talking at Reformed Theological Seminary about this whole subject of God's ordaining everything that comes to pass. Some of those feelings of anxiety and fear that I felt while waiting to get picked for kickball as a small child began to return to me. You see, I never wanted to believe in a God that programmed people like robots. And that's one of the first things that came to mind when I started hearing words like predestination. And the Bible was clear that we do have free agency. We have a moral will. We have the will to choose. We are responsible for our choices and our actions. But the scriptures were so clear and spoke so much about God's sovereignty over all things, and particularly in today's passage, that the problem was that I had in my head a scenario akin to being picked for a basketball game. Kind of that God lined everybody up and said, okay, who do I like? I'm going to pick you, and you're worthy, and you're worthy, and you're worthy, and the rest of you all can quite literally go to hell. That's the way I saw it in my head. And I'm here to encourage you today that that's not at all the case. I also know, too, that as an emotionally charged person, I was experiencing at that time in my life quite a lot of anxiety about whether or not I could lose my salvation because in the in context in which I became a Christian, I was told, uh, yes, you can do something or not do something that at some point can jeopardize your standing with God. There was no permanence to it. And I really didn't have any framework, either biblically or theologically, to be able to say, oh, I can finally just rest. Like, I really am a child of God. 
It wasn't until I went to seminary and met the late Dr. Roger Nicole that all of that changed for me. At RTS, Dr. Nicole was my theological foundations professor. He was a lifelong Baptist who advocated for an egalitarian understanding of gender roles in church. Dr. Nicole was renowned and revered for his theological expertise by my other professors, including Dr. R.C. Sproul. Dr. Nicole received his Ph.D. from Harvard and spoke multiple languages fluently. But what made Dr. Nicole an elderly man on his last post at our seminary, he died just a few years ago, what made him so wonderful was his winsomeness. In our class, he managed to explain, quote-unquote, reformed theology in a way that not only clarified the mysterious tension between human free will and God's sovereignty, but he did so with a grace and humility such that I was forced to take a dispassionate, for the first time, a dispassionate approach to the biblical text and listen. In other words, he wasn't a jerk. So when he started talking about the theology, I didn't find myself going, I don't care what this guy believes, I'm not going to believe it because he's just a jerk. And unfortunately, in our strand, as is the case in other strands of Christianity, people get all amped up about their particular nuance And they actually get a bit arrogant and heady. And I'd met some people, and it had colored the way I felt about things. Today I'm going to talk about this whole issue of the the melding of God's sovereignty and free will. How we reconcile those two things. How as a church we traditionally have done so. The first part of my sermon is really going to be a history lesson. I sort of want to give you a heads up of where we're heading. Because I want you to understand this in context of... uh, Protestant church history of the last few centuries, but I also then I'm going to take a very clear picture. I want us to get at least a couple of quick assessments from our text today in Ephesians chapter 1. When it comes to the issue of God's predestining, sovereignly electing how he chooses, that was explained to me by Dr. Nicole a little like this. God has all humanity lined up in front of him. And he bids that we all come to be a part of his team. He invites all to come. But because by nature we are rebellious, we all turn, face the other way, and walk away. And that in his mercy, as it speaks of in Romans 9, he mercifully turns some around. So his enabling of us to believe is really what's at the root. He has determined in his foreknowledge that he is going to enable some to believe because if he didn't, if he wasn't merciful, no one would. Jesus spoke of this, about this need for the Father to draw us to himself in John six forty four, when Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. The term draw is not like a convincing invitation, but instead like drawing water from a well in a bucket. And God's sovereignty over everything, including our conversion to Christianity, has implications that produce amazing benefits. Today we're going to look at the theological history of Prism's strand of Christianity. As a non-denominational church that is part of the Acts 29 network of churches, we fall under a particular tradition of Protestant churches called Reformed churches. Now, 
the varying churches in Protestant history, let alone Christian history, all have their own sort of history, theological nuances, and culture. But over time, there's been tremendous overlap between some of these movements. Let me give you a little chart. All right, this will help you understand overarchingly what this started out as. There was a unified Catholic, small c, which just meant universal church, that existed for, about a, for a little over a thousand years with some minor rifts here and there that have actually been healed between the Roman Catholic Church and some of the things that got sideways in the first millennium. Around 1054 AD, there was a gargantuan split in the church, and it's actually in history, church history, referred to as the Great Schism. It was a division between the Church of Rome and the other four stations of Christianity, the other big cities in the eastern part of Asia and parts of Europe. And what happened was it was referred to as Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. So the Roman Catholic Church is really a church that they would make a claim that they were the correct church overarchingly all. They adopted the Catholic capital C to say, to pay sort of their homage historically to the universal church that existed before the schism. But the Eastern Orthodox churches were maintaining that they were as correct on the doctrinal split as the Roman Catholic Church. You say, what are the Eastern Orthodox churches? They would be Russian Orthodox. You you have friends who maybe are Greek Orthodox. You watch Seinfeld and George tried to marry somebody who was Latvian Orthodox. You've been there. You You know the routine. So the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, went their, went their separate ways. Okay, so a few hundred years later in the 16th century, it's signified by this date in 1517 when Martin Luther kind of sparked this Protestant Reformation that had been brewing under the surface. The Roman Catholic Church split in 1517 with a group of Protestant churches. Okay, and this is kind of sort of where we come from. So now if we zero in on that bottom section there, you look at the Protestant churches, there were four particular strands of Protestant churches. This is an incredibly general overview. Fuller students here who've taken deep Christian history, forgive me for its cursory, I'm on a time clock. So I will just say, generally speaking, every denomination that is a Protestant denomination gets fit, can get fit under one of these categories. You've got Lutherans. Some of it is geographic. Some of it is theological. Lutherans, the origin of that movement, obviously Martin Luther's Band of Merry Brothers in Germany. And then you had the Anglican movement, which was largely begun as a Protestant movement in England. You had the Anabaptist tradition, which includes your Mennonite friends and the Amish and a variety of other denominations. And then you have the other strand of Protestant Reformation, which I have, for our purposes today, painted orange to match our logo, just for reinforcement, is the Reformed denomination. Now, I I point this out because one of the first things that's really hard for me to do when I start talking about, about the theology of our tradition is when they hear the word Reformed, it has kind of an arrogant connotation to it. Because if you've ever known somebody who was a part of a reformed movement, it's a movement that says, we're better than you, we figured it out, and we've reformed the thing. You guys have gotten off track. And so that's kind of sort of the, the, the feel you'll get from them. And truthfully, there have been experiences I've had with churches in our tradition that actually had that kind of vibe to them. So I wouldn't be surprised if the, the mere use of the term would make people kind of 
tighten up. Ironically, no one has a lower view of humankind's moral capability than the people who are reformed. In other words, on the continuum of who thinks the humanities fall from grace is the most catastrophic, we are far and away the people that think the least of humankind's capability. So (laughs) I think it's somewhat ironic that reformed would ever carry with it the connotation that we're better. In fact, we think we're worse, strange as that may sound. Now, given that there is all of this difference of opinion on a variety of issues, let me say three things, and there's a truckload of things that all of these denominations have in common, things that make them distinctively Christian, things, ca- things categorized in the Nicene and the, and the Apostles' creeds. But there are, with regards to our subject du jour, uh, th- there are at least three things that all Christians would kind of confirm that they uh, concur with. All Christians have a doctrine of predestination. You, you have to have a doctrine of predestination if you're going to be a biblical Christian. It's the words all over the place, so everybody will seek to define it somehow. All Christians believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everywhere, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. They do so because it's biblical and it's logical. If you're a Christian, you, you have that in your system. All Christians practically believe that God can and will violate the free will of humanity if he needs to. And I begin that discussion by saying we look at the Apostle Paul, who in Acts 9 becomes the central figure of the New Testament move out of just a Jewish Christianity to a worldwide Christianity. Paul did not seek the Lord. Paul, in fact, was breathing threats against people who did not believe the Lord. Paul did not love Jesus, did not want Jesus, did not believe that Jesus was the risen Son of God. He was not searching for truth. He was a self-righteous Pharisee persecuting people who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. And if you know the story, Paul's strolling along with permission on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians when God knocks him literally on his butt and blinds him and says, you will follow me. You will be my apostle to the Gentiles. Granted, reconciling the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind is tricky theological terrain to navigate. However, whenever I discuss this subject with friends who misunderstand the quote-unquote reformed doctrine of predestination, They assume that our theology negates the need for sharing the gospel with others or a host of other Christian duties. Nothing could be further from the truth. I had Methodist friends, and we we jabbed at each other. We were really good friends, who would ask me why I shared the gospel if God had predetermined who he was going to save. Well, aside from the fact that that's sort of a mischaracterization of what we think as a a tradition, our, our characterization is that God enables us to believe Aside from that, I ask my friends who don't necessarily believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, why they're asking God to rescue their friends, why they pray and say, Jesus, rescue my daughter who's a drug addict. If you don't believe God will enter in and overwhelm and rescue somebody's will in spite of their resistance, what are you praying for? That God will sort of slightly gently nudge them? Any parent of a rebellious teenager will tell you they, care, they could care less about the precious free will of their teenager. They just pray, God, bowl them over with your grace. 
do whatever you got to do. Get them out of that relationship. I mean, you know, you have a teenager, and then find out what I mean. You just don't care about their agency. You just want them to be safe. And it is evident from Scripture that God is willing to do this. He heals people without them sometimes asking for it. He moves in their lives in Scripture without them asking for it. And when people pray and say, God, do something, God actually begins to respond to those prayers. See, we believe God moves because we ask him to and we need him to. Before I transition to looking at our text, and we're getting close to the halfway point for those of you with the internal clock that says, just how long is this sermon going to be? I'd like to transition by reading something from an Anglican theologian who I admire a bunch. His name is J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer says this. It's a rather lengthy quote, so I would encourage you to read along with me. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds. And it is not surprising that even good men should fall victim to it. Hence, this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it as strongly as those who affirm it. How, then, do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, I can only say that I do not think you are yet born again. But if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in the debates on the question in the past, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. Upon closer reflection, we see that God mentions his predetermining decrees to rescue people, not to make us lethargic about our Christian responsibilities, but to keep us from misunderstanding our role or taking credit for his work. We have two things from our passage this morning I want to I show you. And the first is that one of the purposes, there are many purposes for the intervening sovereign grace of God. One of them is the mysterious purpose and the majestic praise of God. And the second is the muffling of pride and the means of personal security. Let me read first from verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first, the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. While it may be a mystery why God chooses to enable rebellious hearts like mine to believe, it is no mystery that one of the reasons for his sovereignty would be that we would worship him for who he really is. Majestic, powerful, all powerful, that we should revere him, that we should be in awe of his being. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is really a carefully constructed composition of six sections. It's best understood really as a prayer or a hymn that Paul wrote. This prayer or hymn is a, a a declaration of the majesty and love of God revealed in his eternal plan and our privilege of participating in it. And there are six separate stanzas to these, 
these 11 verses for the purposes of understanding why God would give us a glimpse into the eternal purposes of his sovereign grace, I want to focus on verses 11 through 14, which refer back to the first stanzas in this stretch. Verses 11 through 14 are are begun with the words, in him. It is the third, quote-unquote, in him of the passage. The in him benefits listed in Ephesians 1 are designed to help us to see that when we are in Christ, three things are guaranteed us. Our redemption, our inheritance, and the peace of knowing that we're secure in him. These are the six separate stanzas of this section, and this would be the last one. His sovereignty over all things should naturally lead us to the exalting of him. His majesty should produce wonder. He controls all, including what evil he will allow. And we see this most evident in the gospel of Jesus. We see this most evident in the fact that when Jesus was being crucified, the father didn't intervene. He had commanded not to kill, and yet they killed. He had commanded the most most clear presentation of moral absolutes are the Ten Commandments, And I I would venture to say that if you looked at the lives of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans, that they violated all ten in the process of bringing Jesus to the cross. Not to mention the role of Satan in all of that. The most evil act in the history of humanity took place when Jesus was crucified. And yet, Jesus knew that it was determined from the beginning of all time that he would do that to save anyone who would ever believe in him. See, God can masterfully make all these things work together. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 through 38, the writer, uh, writer, the Old Testament writer pens, who has commanded, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has ordained it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and evil come? Romans 8, 28, a verse we love to quote, and yet rarely apply. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things are worked together. Even the stuff that's the hardest, most difficult, even the things that other people mean for evil, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said God intended it for good. I was recently watching a movie about Bobby Fischer, who's considered the the greatest chess player in American history. Some would contend the world. Of course, Americans always contend that. The Russians have something else to say about that. Bobby Fischer was so brilliant that by the end of his life, he was sort of crazy. I mean, really super intelligent. The grandmasters of chess, if you've never gone online and see them, it's something that you should YouTube. It's pretty impressive. They they can play average players, and even above average players, and even great players. They can play six and seven of them at a time. And just walk along and remember as they're moving the chess pieces on all these boards. They know seven, eight moves ahead. They know what they're going to do if this person does that. They know what they're going to do if this person does that. They have in their heads, they can prearrange the whole game in such a way that you're making the choice to move your rook, but they knew you were going to do that. And so they're getting ready to move their, their queen to take you out. This is what the, ch- the masters of chess can do. You are playing the game. You are making the choices. 
but they're better than you. They knew what you were going to do. They knew if they opened this door, you'd walk through it. They know if they closed this door, you'd go somewhere else. This is the nature of being a grandmaster chess champion. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the reconciling of the sovereignty of God with the free will of human beings. He is grand. He is huge. He is so beyond our comprehension. He's not manipulating us. He knows what we're going to choose. He's working all things together for good. He never wrung his hands at the crucifixion of Christ and said, these people aren't doing what I want. He knew exactly what they were going to do. He allowed them to do it. He used it for good, our redemption. This is what we're told. Sovereign grace purpose number one is the mystery of God and how it should lead us to majestic praise. But the peace for knowing that he majestically works all things together for good comes at a price. And that price is our pride. That's the cost. Sovereign grace purpose number two is the muffling of pride and the means of personal security. Let me continue in our passage. This is verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It is the testimony of the Apostle Paul that he was not seeking Jesus, but quite the opposite. A persecutor of Christians who was the last person of any believer in that season would have ever imagined would become a movement leader to the Gentiles. He is the most dramatic example of this intervening grace, but all of us, in part, can say the same. God did not ask Paul if he wanted to be his prophet. He made Paul his apostle. And we see this willingness by God to assert his will in this manner throughout the Old Testament and the New. For most of us, it isn't quite this intense, but if we think back to how we got interested in the faith, we almost always have to attribute it to forces outside of ourselves. You were raised in a great Christian home. Did you pick that house? No, you didn't. You met somebody. See, I met a cute girl my senior year in high school, and that means of grace got me to a church that preached the gospel, and I received Christ. I mean, did I think, wow, I'm going to go find myself a really great Christian girl? No. I was just, she was cute. Some of us could say that we've had people influence our lives in such a way that it dramatically changed the course of our lives. We all must say that God has, in, different, in a different variety of ways, moved to bring us to faith. And this is the intention of God so that we would never grow proud. Look at what we read last week from Ephesians 2 and really appreciate what the Apostle Paul, same writer as our writer in Ephesians 1, obviously, was saying, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And some interpret this passage to say that it isn't just the grace that has been a gift to you. The entire faith, the ability to believe, is a gift of God, not by our works. Even our capacity to comprehend, we would contend in our strand of Christianity, that God has to do this in all of us. 
we think, as a matter of fact, it's not just Paul. We, we would liken the process of what God has to do for us spiritually to help us come to faith to how Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. We are spiritually dead, the scriptures say. So Lazarus was physically dead. And Jesus said, come forth. See, he brought Lazarus to life by the word, by the efficacious word that he spoke. And we believe that this quickening is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and, 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 and awakens us. See, if that doesn't happen, we don't receive Christ. We, we can't even hear what he's saying. If he doesn't wake us up, we're never going to know what that's like. Now, that happens in a variety of ways, but nonetheless, it happens. He must bring us to life to be able to respond. His call is effective. Apart from that, we believe we would all naturally turn away. Philippians 1, 6, the apostle wrote to that church and said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So the testimony of Paul was that the father began the work and he's actually going to be the one that completes the work. And this was great news for me. One piece of this verse in Philippians 1, 6 that I find exciting is, is the, the phrase, the day of Christ Jesus. This is speaking of that day when you and I will inherit that which is promised in the scriptures. We are told in Ephesians 1.14 that we were given the Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the Spirit. And that is a clear reference to what Romans used to do to make something a matter of law, a matter of certainty. The Roman seal would get placed on something. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a seal to guarantee our inheritance. This day of Jesus Christ is the guaranteed day when we receive the inheritance that Jesus bought for us, not only by dying in our place to pay for or redeem us from our sins, but Jesus lived the sinless life that we now receive, we are credited with by virtue of his presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit living in you means that God the Father sees you in Christ, in him, as spotless. Much to my chagrin, my 20-year-old daughter, who will go to UC Irvine next fall, is talking about joining a sorority. I, I worry about it mostly, not because Holly's a wild child. She's actually, the, she's a really nice kid. Um, and she's not here today, so I can talk about her. Um, unless she listens online, then I'm in real trouble. But that's neither here nor there. Holly, um, uh, I'm worried about, obviously, my daughter, who I think is beautiful. I just don't want her to go through a process with some sorority that's going to evaluate how refined she is or how beautiful she is. I don't want anybody making those exterior judgments about my daughter and hurting her, wounding her in some way. I, I just want her heart to always feel secure in who she is. I, and she's mature enough where she'll make it through that process. And even if she does get a rejection from her sorority of choice, I'm sure God will use it to refine her in a certain way. But I don't know if, if you understand in the Greek system, the term uh, a legacy. Do you know what a legacy is in Greek terminology? A legacy is when you have a father, a mother, or an older brother or sister who were a member of a fraternity or a sorority, you are guaranteed admission to that sorority. It means you can be the most, you can be the dumbest person on planet Earth. You can be the homeliest person that ever walked the, the, the campus. 
But when it comes time to issue bids, you're getting one because of the efforts of someone who came before you, someone who obviously met the standard. This is the gospel, friends. Our older brother Jesus was perfect, and he earned our right to be the children of God. He redeemed us so that we could know that we know that we know that we will receive his inheritance. It's guaranteed. You can't do anything to lose it. You didn't do anything to get it other than respond to his call, which he, of course, enabled you to do. You can't not do something to lose it. You are guaranteed it. And more than that, his Holy Spirit brought us back from spiritual death so we could hear the gospel and respond in faith. Our older brother has created a means by which you as a believer have a legacy. You are a legacy of Jesus. Why? Because he loves you. Because he doesn't want us to proudly think it depends on us, because that's always going to backfire, I can assure you. Because he wants us to securely rest that the salvation he purchased for you and me is guaranteed to happen. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that you would encourage us by the simple reality that your grace is greater than our sin, that your grace is sufficient for our needs. As well, Lord, you would give us joy in knowing that you've begun the good work in us, and you've even given us the faith to respond to you and say, Jesus, I will follow, and you're giving us the strength to continue, and you're the one who will intervene when we pray, that's because you're sovereign over all things. It is really the root of my peace, our peace. That we, we believe that you can do anything, that there is nothing that can stop you. And we thank you that you just graciously, mercifully enabled us to see Jesus as our Savior. Would you bless us today as we get a picture of how glorious you are that we would love you, obey you, and most of all, worship you as you are due. We pray in Jesus' name.